Hello, everyone, and welcome to BibleQuest.tv. This is the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today. We have a couple of topics we'll be talking about that was sent in by our viewers, and we want to remind all of you that are watching the program live that we want to hear from you. Please uh, enter in your uh, your comments by text if you're coming in on the um, the Zoom app that, that you get at BibleQuest.tv. Click the Q&A button and type in your questions or click the, um, the hand icon. Let us know you want to come in using your audio. Talk to us directly with your questions or comments. We invite you to do that as, to, to do that as well. If you're watching on the YouTube channel, the Bible Quest YouTube channel, uh, we have a they have a comment box there. Just fill in your comments or questions there as well. We really want to hear from you and uh, talk about things that you want to hear or talk about, about Bible topics. And we're so glad that uh, I see you at your video here, Jeff. Glad to see you joining us today. How are you doing? Hey, good afternoon, Drew, and good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. And I know Scott is here. He was here a few minutes ago. Uh, Scott, are you here? I don't see your video. Uh, maybe we lost Scott on the. He's still uh, he's still connected, but he had he's not. Uh, I'm not sure why he's off camera right now. Maybe he'll be joining us in just a minute. Yeah, I don't see him yet at all. But uh, so we'll stall a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, let me just give a heads up on what we're talking about. Can't find the right buttons. So. Oh, there you go. Good to see you, Scott. You <laughs> Good to be with you. Good. Yeah, you got to make sure you punch the right buttons on these things. So, um, we're going to be talking about three different things that um, have come in uh, recently from viewers. And I'm trying to find my list here. Oh, here's the screen here. Basically, three things. What are women's roles in the church? Uh uh, the second thing will be, uh, not necessarily in this order, but the next thing will be uh, 1 Timothy 1, 9, which has to do with something about laws or not for the righteous. And then uh, the third thing will be uh, social drinking, alcohol and or marijuana. Uh, someone asked, what is our opinion on that? And I want to start by saying we don't, we try not to give you our opinions. If we do, we let you know it's our opinion. But we like to look at these things from the biblical standpoint. What does the Bible say? We may not like sometimes what it says, but we're trying not to give our opinions, but what the scriptures are saying. All right. So, uh, Scott, you want to take start it off? Scott, you're our program director. You're going to take the lead on this one. Why don't you go ahead and start the program off? All right. Well, let's read the question. The way the question was written, it was written, uh, I think, with a bit of uh sarcasm or an agenda in mind but let's go ahead and get the way our viewer submitted the question and then we'll start responding to it from scripture okay so the question was submitted from a viewer quote what is the role of women in the church other than babysitting and sitting down and looking pretty so obviously, uh, whoever sent this, uh, thanks for the question, but <laughs> if, if that's your idea of what the Bible teaches, then uh, you've got a lot to learn about the Bible. What's presumed here is that if the women are not up, or at least what, what it sounds like is being presumed, is if the women are not taking the leading role, if they're not being vocal, if they're not in the front, if they're not standing up, if they're not leaders, 
then we have relegated them to sitting, looking pretty, and babysitting. Uh, let's begin with the fact that the Bible does really, really clearly make different roles for men and women. And we're going to see, first off, that the role of women in the church is not to be the ones up front, the ones being vocal, the ones that's not their role. That doesn't mean they don't have hugely valuable roles that we'll start looking at in a minute through the New Testament. Uh, but I heard an illustration the other day. Uh, in fact, um, my dad used it in, in a speech he was giving. And he said, which is better, a fork or a spoon? A fork or a spoon? Yeah, which is better, a fork or a spoon? Well, it kind of depends on whether you're eating soup or... Um, a salad. A salad. There you go. Yeah. And one's better for one thing, one's better at another. Are there things that men are roles that God has fitted men to be better for? You know, it's not such a, uh, a popular thing today, but it's really an obvious thing that men and women are different. Yes. And men, uh, because of the things that are unique to them, are better at some things. And women, because of the things that are unique to them, are better at some other things. Yeah. That's and, a foreign concept. Where did you get that idea from? You know, it's, it's been obvious throughout history, but somehow we live in a time right now where people kind of close their eyes to what's obvious. Yeah. Two sources, two sources before we get that idea would be biology and the Bible. Those are, those would be two sources. Yeah. All right. Um, so for example, let's just talk very quickly about some of the, the roles. When the curses were laid down in the garden of Eden, man and woman have sinned. Curses are placed the curses to the man related to what realm? Well, the curses related to the man uh, related to the realm of, of uh, farming, of tilling the land, uh, the work that he was going to have to do to provide for his family, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the curses relating to the woman related to what types of realm? Well, childbirth. Um, and there is the stipulation uh, that she is, there's an interesting expression, uh, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. And that gets translated various ways. Uh, I think perhaps the best way to understand it is to compare it to the expression in Genesis 4, where God says to Cain, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. You must overcome it. And put, putting those two together, it seems that part of what God has decreed in that passage in Genesis 3 with regard to the woman is that she's going to have to guard against the desire to rule over her husband and she is going to have to look to his lead. All right. And when we get to the New Testament, for example, uh, Jesus came as a man or a woman? He came as a man. And he picked 12 apostles and what percentage were women? Approximately 0%. Right. Oh, and, I think which percentage were men? I'm sorry, I said 100% for men. 100% men? Zero. Although I'm, I'm going to jump ahead here, and, and uh, I don't want to take you off track, but I'm just going to jump ahead here and say that that doesn't mean women were not very important in Jesus' ministry. They were, and I will probably get a chance to talk about that in a minute. Exactly, and that's where we're about to go to. Uh, but let's just get this other point uh, established, that the woman's role in the church is not the one up front leading, the one being vocal, the one being teaching, 
etc. Two verses in the New Testament that make that clear would be well, two verses would make that clear in First Corinthians chapter fourteen, verse thirty-four, and really First Timothy chapter two, verses eleven, twelve, thirteen, in that section right there. Yeah. So, for example, in the Timothy passage, First Timothy three, uh, excuse me, First uh, Timothy two, eleven. Let a woman learn in quietness with all subjection, but I permit not a woman to teach nor to have dominion over a man, but in quietness. And it goes back to the order of creation. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, starting in the middle of verse 33, as in all the churches of the saints, let the women keep silence in the churches. For it is not permitted them to speak, let them be in subjection, as also saith the law. And it says that this is commandment of the Lord in verse 37. So that's not their role. So our authors, our, our question uh, submitter has said, so what are they just supposed to look pretty and, and sit? Uh, so that's where we come to some really powerful and interesting examples from the New Testament. Uh, Scott, Scott, can I interrupt just for a minute? You know, we started this off earlier, and you reminded me that Jonathan would not be here today. Right. I would make sure I'll take care of everything. Well, I apologize. I had the Facebook, uh, uh, YouTube channel going. I just forgot to click the broadcast button. <laughs> on the app. So let me just repeat that question and don't go back through everything yet because you're still at the very beginning of this. But we're talking about uh, three questions. The first one is dealing with uh, women's roles in the church. I apologize for that to everybody that's in the program, in the audience, but we're live. So <laughs> were we not broadcasting before just now? No, we were broadcasting, but not on the app. Okay, gotcha. All right, all right. So we'll proceed then. And and what we did just established, if you're just coming in now, was that the role of women is not the one of being the teachers, the leaders, and the assembly over the men, etc. We went to First Timothy two, First uh, uh, Corinthians fourteen, and look back at the order of creation. And Scott, before we leave leave that, if if I could make this observation, sometimes people come at this with the, the having in mind those upfront roles, if we can put it that way, why can't the woman be in the pulpit? Why can't the, and, and, and their, their mindset is those are the honorable, those are the important positions. I think it would be helpful to establish that from a biblical perspective, even though it is the men who are going to be in those positions, we've got the wrong concept of those positions. When we think of those positions that way, and if I could mention two passages. Yes, please do. One is Matthew chapter 21, where those male apostles, um, a couple of them, the question has come up, if they could sit at the left hand and right hand of Jesus in his kingdom. And Jesus has somewhat to say about the idea of positions of honor. And he says, you know, in, in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25, Jesus says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Not so shall it be among you. Whosoever would become great among you shall be your minister, which means servant. And whosoever would be first among you shall be, and this translation says servant, but here's the word it means slave. And then we go to Matthew chapter 23, and when Jesus is talking about religious leaders who viewed those upfront positions as important and as positions of status, Jesus confronts that idea, rebukes that idea, 
and says in verse 11 of Matthew 23, he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be humbled, and whosoever shall humble himself shall be exalted. So I think one of the things we've got to do is get away from the idea that if in the New Testament assemblies men were to do the public speaking, that somehow exalts them to a higher status. It doesn't. In the New Testament church, uh, he would have a responsibility. He would have an opportunity to serve in that capacity. That's the way he should look at it. And women also have ways to serve yes. different ways. And, and when men are, are standing up, it should not be to glorify them. Right. The, 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 when somebody is standing teaching people about the word of Christ, it should be the, the, the glory should be pointed to Christ. The honor should be pointed to Christ. That's where it's pointed. And, and you know, if we have viewers who are kind of anti-religion or anti-church or something like that, and, they're, and you're sitting there listening to us saying, well, yeah, right, I've been to church, I've seen the... I've seen the status associated with those who are up front. I've seen the special role and all of that. Okay, granted, you've seen that. But that's not the biblical teaching. That's not in accordance with what Jesus had in mind. So don't judge Jesus by what you've seen. Don't judge the New Testament church described in the Bible by what you've seen in some church you've visited. A lot of churches are doing a lot of things contrary to what the Bible teaches. So you're saying also that the men in those positions, they wear these special robes and garb that also brings more attention to their important status and level? Yes. 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 And, and it's... I'm sorry, yeah, that? like the Pharisees. Scott said like the Pharisees. And it's not even just those who wear special robes. I, I have seen situations where men who would disdain wearing special robes or having a special title attached to themselves, nonetheless looked upon their role as, as a status symbol yes. and who desired to be able to be preaching in a congregation that is large and impressive and has an impressive building because they view their work as kind of climbing a career ladder. Right, That's right. mentality thing. Uh, we don't have to have that mentality. And I guess I just want to say again, let's not judge God's word by people who depart from God's word. Right. Good point. Right. All right. So now coming to the role of women. So we're going to talk uh, briefly here about some women like Joanna, like Mary, like Mary Magdalene, like Priscilla, uh, like the honorable women of uh, Chief of State in, in Acts chapter 17. These women played huge roles in the New Testament church. And we'll also look at Titus chapter 2. So who's, who'd like to start off on any of those? Well, you mentioned several women who are mentioned in Luke, the eighth chapter and verses two and three. Um, I think I'll read starting in verse one, if that's all right. Came to pass soon afterwards that he, Jesus, went about through cities and villages, preaching and bringing the good tidings of the kingdom of God and with him the twelve. And certain women who had been healed of evil spirits, and infirmities, and then it names the Mary that was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusus, or Cusus, Herod's steward, and Susanna, and many others who ministered unto them of their substance. You have some women here who are financially 
and materially providing uh, the support that Jesus and the 12 need as they go about preaching. You know, I've seen examples of this today, uh, women who make possible the things the men do. Yeah. And, uh, and, and I'll tell you this, today in, in, in my studies, I would say as often as not over the years or more often, my Bible studies get set up by my sisters in Christ who are looking for opportunities and finding them. say, Scott, I, I, I've got this person. They would like a Bible study. Scott, you know, I'm going to have this person over. Could you come study the Bible with them? The, the, and, and you stop and think about the Samaritan woman in, in John chapter 4. When she learns Jesus is the Messiah, she'd gone out there with her watering pot, right, to get some water. When she realizes Jesus is the Messiah, what'd she do with that pot? She just dropped she left it, left it, it behind. Yard, left it there, and she got to town and started letting everybody know about who she met. And well, then got- here comes the town. This has been my experience, too. I have had uh, through the years many times when women in the church here would, and women are good at networking. Women are good at talking to their friends. Women are good at talking to their neighbors and sharing what is important to them. And because of that talent and ability, uh, they've connected me with others who wanted to hear God's word. And, you know, I'll go a step further. Uh, In the church here in Exton, women are the backbone of the congregation. It is the women who, uh, who really make this congregation thrive. It's the women who cause it to be knit closely together and who take the initiative for a lot of the things that get done, the activities, the interaction between people, the reaching out to the people who are in need, who are sick, uh, organizing things for uh, Bible studies, organizing things for caring for, seeing to, to it that families have meals when someone is sick or in the hospital, that kind of thing. We just have some women who take a lot of initiative in those ways. And without that, without their efforts, really, this congregation wouldn't be a, being a very effective group. Listen to this description of Phoebe in Romans chapter 16. Phoebe uh, is the one that delivered the epistle of Paul to the Romans from uh, the Corinth Sincrea area over to Rome. So she takes the letter there, and as they receive it, at the end, it commends Phoebe who brought it. I commend unto you, I'm reading from Romans 16.1, I commend unto you, Phoebe, our sister, who is a servant of the church that is at Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord worthily of the saints, and that you assist her in whatsoever matter she may have need of you, for she herself, Uh-oh. many, themselves. Um, let me throw this in there real quick, and then I want to get to verse 3 there in Prisca. Earlier I said, what percentage of the apostles were uh, female? The answer was? None. Yeah. It was uh, 100% males. Here's a follow-up question. Where were the apostles on Sunday morning? After Hi. 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 Who shows up at the tomb? Women. The women. The men are not the ones that come to the tomb. It, the men are not the ones who come to him. It is the women who come to him. Joanna, uh, one of the ones mentioned back there in Luke 18, uh, the wife of Herod Stewart, she's one of the ones who comes to the tomb. 
And, uh, and you, sorry, I'm just giving a signal here. Um, and, and so you've got the women doing these things there. You've got in the upper room before the day of Pentecost, there's a number of women from Galilee there. And in the conversion stories, you have uh, women being mentioned there. And let's look at this with Prisca. This mentions her and her husband. But in Romans 16.3, it's kind of interesting. Salute Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life laid down their own necks, unto whom not only I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. And salute the church that is in their house. How many impressive things can you see about Christa here just from this text? Name them for us. Point them out. Itemize them. All right. Let's start with at the end. The church is meeting in their house. The church needs somewhere to meet. And in Rome, who opened up their home for them? It was Prisca and Aquila. Not the first time either. Back when they were in Asia, when Paul writes 1 Corinthians, he says, greetings from Aquila and Priscilla and the church, the church in their house. Their house. Um, they, he says, I give thanks for them. Also, all the churches, the Gentiles give thanks for them. And they save Paul's life. They risk their neck and save Paul's life. We don't know all the details on that. But it, it's a fantastic event there where they had saved the life of Paul. Uh, also, who was it, same couple but not in this text, that that straightened out Apollos and helped him to learn more so that he would know more and could be the servant that he was when he went to Corinth. Well, you kind of gave it away. You said, who was it? Same couple. <laughs> it, it, was this, it was the same couple. <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah. the important thing to notice there, it's not that, and, and she's sometimes called Prisca and sometimes called Priscilla. It's not that she sat there serving sandwiches uh, nothing wrong with serving sandwiches. That's an important work. But in Acts, the 18th chapter, it says, they expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. They did, both Priscilla and Aquila, the woman and her husband, and they expounded the way of God more accurately to a man who's been described as mighty in the scriptures, a man who was eloquent and all of that, but he needed uh, some improvement in his understanding, and they expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. And she, nor Aquila, thought it necessary to stand up in the synagogue and draw attention to themselves when this, they made this correction. Right. They saw men who believed in Jesus Christ and was teaching him accurately in the synagogue, but they knew there was a deficit in his knowledge, and it said that uh, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him him and expounded unto him the way of God more accurately. If just in the assembly, if either one of them had said, hey, boss, you've got that wrong, et cetera, it would have been a distraction to the message that they're trying to give to the synagogue and such. It was also polite to do it this way, but I... Uh, well, while you're frozen up, I'll call attention to another passage. Well, hold uh, on, Jeff. Let me interrupt you interrupting Scott. Okay. Before you leave Romans. Wait, Scott's going to interrupt you interrupting me interrupting him. Yeah, now he's going to interrupt us because he's unfrozen. But I don't think Scott went to verse 6. He talks about, Paul says, greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Uh, 
I don't remember how many, but the, I think there's like about what five or six different Marys that are listed in the New Testament. Uh, a bunch of Marys, yes. Yeah, and so this one is. They must have known who he's talking about. She's working with them right at the Roman Church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The great Mary who has worked hard for you. Yeah. Uh, in the letter to the Philippians, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2, uh, Paul says, I exhort Euodia and I exhort Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. And we can stop there, and maybe all we get out of that is, well, there were a couple of women who were causing problems in the church at Philippi, and Paul had to call them out. Or we can keep reading, and we get a little bit more. Yea, this is verse 3, I beseech thee also, true well yoke fellow, help these women, for they labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Here are a couple of women whom Paul mentions as having labored with him in the gospel and with Clement also. God, are you back with us now? Yes, yes I am. I am. Yes, I am. And let's no, also look. You can't hear me? Now we can. Okay. All right. So uh, here's another text we're going to look at. Look at Titus chapter 2. When we talk about what is a woman's role in the church, we need to remember that there is the church in the sense of assembly, like in 1 Corinthians 11, when you come together in the church or as a church or I'd rather speak five words with understanding in the church. There's that sense of the assembly of the church. But in the sense of being God's people, uh, the role of women is, is just huge. Listen to this in Titus chapter 2. It says, speak the things, Titus chapter 2, that befit the sound doctrine. It says what older men should be like. They should be temperate, brave, sober-minded, sound in faith, love, patience. Older women should be reverent in demeanor, not slanderers or enslaved to much wine. Teachers of what is good, that they may train the young women to love their husbands, love their children, be sober-minded, chaste, pure, workers at home, kind, being in subjection to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. You stop and think about how powerful and strong a church is when this is what the women are doing. Mm -hmm. And you stop and think about how weak a church is when the women don't love their husbands, don't love their children, they're impure, they're in, unchaste, they're concerned about everything but their family. You just tear up a church. It, somebody once said, you know, the hand that rocks the cradle rules the world. You know, it's women mold men. That's true. And, and when they are, when they choose to marry and they're blessed with children, they're making human beings. Other people may make a car or a computer or a phone. Women make human beings. And, and the role that they play is just incredible. And not just they make human beings by carrying them for nine months and delivering a baby into the world. They right. then develop that little baby into a child and into a teenager and into an adult ready to take on responsibility, the kind of things. You know, Proverbs 31, 
where it talks about the worthy woman. Those are the words of King Lemuel that his mother taught him. And so he had been influenced by her. We know, we talk about even back in Jesus' time on earth and in his resurrection, the important role women were playing then. We talk about the events leading up to his crucifixion, and we talk about at his resurrection when who came to the empty tomb. I'm not sure we, we mentioned that even right at the cross, um, Matthew chapter 27, verse 55, as Jesus dies on the cross, many women were there beholding from afar who had followed Jesus from Galilee. Galilee, you're talking some 70 miles north of Jerusalem, and they had come down with, Jerus- with Jesus Verse 56, among whom was Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Joseph and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. So we have just throughout Jesus' time on earth, uh, throughout the work of the apostles after Jesus ascends back to the Father, there's a great deal of emphasis upon the important role that not only men played, but the important role that women played in the work of Jesus and in the spread of the gospel. Very good. All right, we've got two more questions. I think we can get to both of them pretty quickly. The first one's real short, uh, and that was on 1 Timothy 1.9. Uh, Drew, do you have that question in front of you? Yeah, there's a thought question for the team. Uh, I don't know who the viewer was. It was anonymous. It says, laws are not for the righteous, and he's refer- he or she is referring to 1 Timothy 1.9. Can you expound upon that? Yeah, so I actually mentioned that uh, in a discussion we were having, um, oh, a week ago or so. I just mentioned the idea, um, and I don't remember what we were talking about, but mentioned the idea that when you have a society of people where they're basically good-hearted people treating their neighbors with love and respect, really following the principles of loving your neighbor, loving your God and loving your neighbor, uh, the things that sum up all of, all of God's law for man. When you have a society of people where that's the kind of thing that prevails, you don't need a lot of laws. Um, and people can enjoy freedom uh, because they don't need a lot of laws restricting them because they're, they're behaving themselves well. It's in a culture, it's in a society where you have people taking advantage of one another, people self-centered, people who are willing to hurt somebody else or to allow somebody else to be hurt if I myself will gain from it, that kind of thing. That's when you need a lot of laws. And I think that's kind of the idea behind this passage here in 1 Timothy 1.9, knowing this, that law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and unruly, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers and so on. I, I don't know what all we, we might want to do with that. I don't remember the context of, of uh, our discussion when, when I was mentioning that passage, but that's what I had in mind there. Yeah, and let's just uh, throw a couple of other verses along with that. And then my third question, you might remember that in Galatians chapter 5, after discussing works of the flesh, uh, fornication, idolatry, strife, jealousy, wrath, drunkenness, etc. He said, if you practice these things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. The fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness. And it says, uh, against such, there is no law. Yeah. 
laws were against these evil things, these these things are, are and, and the principle, like you said, for people to have a right attitude, righteous, loving attitudes, listen to this from Romans chapter 13. Oh, no man anything to say to love one another, for he that loves his neighbor, neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not kill, you shall not covet. If there be any other commandment, it's summed up in this world, name this word, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love works no ill to his neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of law. You know, guys, could we, let's chase this rabbit just for a minute here and tell me what you think about this observation. When we go to the Old Testament, it's very quickly, we get the impression, wow, there were a lot of rules in the Old Testament. Uh, You had rules in the Old Testament, for example, if you build a, uh, a second floor on your house or you have an exposed roof. I don't remember how it's worded, but there's a, a law there about a parapet, a low retaining wall you would have to have around the top of your house. Do we find that kind of a law in the New Testament explicitly spelled out? I don't think so, but we do have a principle about loving your neighbor. And when you think about for whom is the New Testament written and for whom the Old Testament law of Moses was written. Well, the Old Testament law of Moses was written for a nation defined as those who are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right. We're not all inwardly of the heart that God would have had them be. When we talk about the New Testament, the epistles of Paul, the epistles of John, the epistles of Peter, uh, even Matthew, Mark, and, and Luke, to a large extent, um, are written for... Christians. Now, I'm not saying that the Gospels weren't also written for the rest of the world, but when we start looking at the New Testament, where we don't see rules about a parapet around the top of your house, we're reading something that is written for God's people who are obedient from the heart. We're, we're, we're talking about God's instructions to people who have repented of their sins, they have, they have turned to God and want to do what's right. Um, you think it's a fair observation that it's in the Old Testament where we have all these rules spelled out, whereas in the New Testament, it's summed up, love your neighbor. I'm not saying there aren't some specific rules. Don't, you know, flee fornication, for example, those kinds of things. But we do see a contrast, don't we, in the Old Testament and New Testament in that way? Yeah, we we do. In fact, I thought you were going to go to the one where Jesus says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, which has that attitude. There you go. And and uh, so things written to Christians are starting with people who have already made a spiritual commitment. Another difference is this. The laws of Moses pertain more to a corporate body of people. Yeah, Some of the laws related to, hey, you don't do this, but others related to, have these cities of refuge and have the elders of the city do this and have, and, and, and here's how corporately the community works. The new Testament's not like that because it's not written to in a theocracy where God has chosen a nation. It's dealing with to the saints of God in Philippi. Yeah. Don't, they don't live in a, in a village that's under a covenant with God. They live in a Roman colony. And so the, the New Testament, it's more about you, the individual, you as a light of the world put in you to do, whereas the Old Testament law dealt with a whole nation, its, its villages, its towns, its, its central places, its, its uh, 
temple and its priesthood and all those kind of corporate. Mm-hmm. And when you look at that corporate whole, that nation as a whole, even though there were godly people and righteous people within it, you could say because of the hardness of their hearts, God gave them certain laws. Jesus talked about in Matthew, the 19th chapter, because of the hardness of their hearts, God gave them a a law about divorce. Divorce was not his ideal, but he's going to permit them to divorce, but he's going to give them some laws about when you put away your wife, here's what happens and so forth. And so what I'm really driving at here is that statement, because of your hardness of heart, it underscores the difference in the kind of audience was was written. Well, Jeremiah 31, 31, the days are going to come when God would make a new covenant, not one just written over here, but one that would be written in their hearts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Where was the law? It was that thing written over there. Mm -hmm. by most people. In the new covenant, it's made up of people who have all come to Christ and the law is written here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Very good. Yeah. Right, let's get to our third question, Drew. It was on marijuana and alcohol. Yeah, the, it said, uh, the question came in, what is your opinion of what God thinks of people who casually drink and smoke weed? Again, anonymous. But first, let me say, as I said, I think I said it before, we're not going to give you our opinion. Um, and then he says, well, what does God think about it? Well, the only way we can know what God thinks about it is by looking at what he says in the scriptures about this topic. And it's not as clear cut as one may think, right? But Scott, what do you want to do? Well, let's start with the fact, just very simply, what the Bible says about drunkenness. Um, and let's go back to Galatians 5, where we were just a minute ago. The works manifest, which... Uh-oh. And it's, did I freeze out? You were you were hiccuping. Go ahead, continue. So, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. I'm in Galatians five, verse nineteen, and it says fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, wraths, factions, divisions, parties, enemies drunkenness, revelings, and such like. Of which I forewarn you, even as I did forewarn you, that those that they who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So drunkards cannot inherit the kingdom of God. We cannot participate in that. Another passage would be First Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. And if somebody says, well, it didn't say anything about marijuana. She said, drunkenness and such life. <laughs> if you want to see a similarity uh, between that, let me just share this real quick. Um, oh, I have a feeling this is going to be good. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's, it's hopefully going to be helpful, but it's, the, it's just kind of interesting. Um, where is it? We're running low on time, and I'm trying to get there. Okay, there it is. my screen. Yeah, I see your screen. All right. So studies with, because everybody's big on getting marijuana legalized now, right? So USA Today, uh, October last year, studies, states with legal marijuana see rise in car crashes, study finds. Uh, CNN reporting the same thing back at the time, citing this study. States that legalize recreational weed 
increase in car accidents. Uh, but of course, our, our, our question said, what about casual use of alcohol and, and, and marijuana? Well, another thing is that well, Scott, we're having trouble with your audio again here. Let's see if we get you back. I think he's can you hear me? Okay, we okay. Hear you can't hear about, me? about half a sentence each time now. I'm going to let you guys finish out then because my signal is apparent. Well, okay. I looked like you had a good. I can't tell you what. Can you? Did you? If you wanted to show us this PowerPoint, if you can click through what you wanted to show us in particular. Um, oh, this is interesting. So I know what this slide's about. Uh, there are a couple of things. What he has highlighted here is the fact that in ancient times it was fairly typical to dilute the wine, three or four parts water to one part wine. There is. There is, um, from ancient times, and if I recall, it's uh, not even that far removed chronologically from New Testament times, a work called the Datenosophists, and it comes from two words, the supper and, uh, and wise men, and it's, it's really a discussion of how to properly have a banquet, how, to, you know, how you have feasts and that kind of thing, and there's an extensive discussion in it about how many parts water to wine is appropriate. And without going into all of the details right now, well, he's got something on screen here from National Geographic. The drinks did not drink pure wine. It was first mixed with water in the crater before being served in the communal cup. Generally speaking, the mixture was two parts wine to five parts water or one part wine to three parts water. Dilution was a nod to moderation. It lengthened the evening's pleasure by ensuring the guests would be truly intoxicated, intoxicated only at the end of the night, and so on. Um, and, and that's not just somebody's say-so. The, the work I was mentioning, and there are other works that I could call your attention to, are works written a couple of thousand years ago, coming from that period of time where they discussed how they would serve wine. The point of that is, first of all, to say, just because wine is mentioned in the Bible and drinking wine is mentioned in the Bible, doesn't mean that it's all right for us to just drink wine straight, undiluted, and, and get drunk, or just drink straight wine for recreational purposes. New and say that I'm doing what Jesus did. I'm doing what they did yeah, in the New Testament. Yeah, Jesus turned water to wine, so it's all right for me. Well, yeah, yeah, they drank wine diluted with water, so it was mostly water. And even then, Christians were warned to be careful not to be given to much wine. Scott, are you back with us here? Yeah, if you can hear me. Yeah. So if you want to take some grapes, and if you want to smash them into some juice, yep. and mix that with water, and a few days later have some more, and a few days later have some more, then yes, at some point there's likely going to be some alcohol in there if it doesn't vinegarize. And, but it's, 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 if it's fresher, you don't. If it's a little older, it, then it likely will have some, but then it's diluted down, and there are warnings, you know, not to drink much of that. Yeah. Uh, and so, like at these symposiums, you would have, I, I remember reading that the guy in charge, he would decide what the ratio is going to be, 
yeah. and they tended to start with the higher quality, good tasting stuff and water that down. But by the end of the wow. evening, yeah. when the courtesans were there and everything, and you're wanting people more drunk, now you give the cheaper wine and you also change the ratio so it's not quite as watered down. And let me say this real quick. It's not just the Greeks that did that. The Romans, I've got a National Geographic book about Roman. It talks about they watered down their wine, and the Jews did too. Uh, Jacob Neusner's book, Invitations to the Talmud, very prolific rabbinical scholar. Um, his book that describes how the Talmud works, the section of Talmud that he uses to dissect and discuss is the section of the Talmud where the rabbis are arguing whether or not you should say the blessing over the wine before you mix it with the water or you should mix it with the water first and then bless it, which shows that their practice was to have, it was a watered-down wine. Yeah, there's, there's more that we can say about that. Maybe we can get to more of that in another webcast, but I think we're running out of time here today. Yes, we are running out of time. I just want to make one last comment on the person or the, the, those that use the, Jesus turning the water into wine as you brought up. It was the best quality wine, obviously. It says that it was very good quality wine. But that doesn't mean they drank it like that. It looks like, based on history and, and what we know in the evidence is, is that they took that wine and watered it down. Is that right, Scott? Well, that's what they did. They took, when I think it says you saved the best, I don't think he's talking about, wow, that's really strong. No. I think he's talking about quality the taste. That's what I meant. Like, quality of taste. I, I, All right. All right, guys. You saved the best. Go ahead, Scott. We're getting hiccups over here all the time. What are you saying? Okay, I say kick him out. We can't hear him. Let's just kick him out. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We're past the time, and I'm guilty of that as well. Thank you very much for your input, comments, and thank you, everyone in the audience, for uh, being here with us today. We invite you back again next week. But please send us in your questions, send us in your comments. Go to BibleQuest.tv. Fill out the form with your questions. It could be anonymous. And we'd love to talk on the air about your topics. Thank you very much, everyone. Have a great week. See you next time. Bye-bye.